tonight on Perch Exploitation. The shining razor hovered above Sweeney's throat. It descended under his chin and scraped gently upward, taking away lather and stubble, leaving a clean, smooth swath. It rose again. Take this rip of business, said the barber. He wiped the razor on a piece of tissue and poised it again. It's got the whole damn town jittery. It got me pinched last night. Sweeney grunted interrogatively. Carrying a razor. I keep my good home. I got a swatty. At home because somebody walk off with it around this joint. So every once in a while I take a razor home. Never thought nothing of it. Put it in the breast pocket of my suit coat and the top of it shows. And damn if a harness bull didn't stop me right on the street and get tough. I was lucky to be able to show identification I was a barber, or he'd have run me in. Pretty near did anyway. Said for all anybody knew, the Ripper's a barber too. But he ain't. The razor scraped. How do you know? Sweeney asked. Throats. A barber that went nuts would cut throats with it. All day long, people lay stretched out in front of him with their throats bare and their chins thrown back, and he just can't help thinking how easy it'd be. And how, uh, you know what I mean. Sweeney said, You got something there. You don't feel like cutting one today, I hope. Nope, not today, the barber grinned. But once in a while, well, your mind does screwy things. So does yours, Sweeney said. The razor scraped. The barber put a steaming towel over Sweeney's face and patted it down. He said, anyway, I figure the Ripper uses a knife instead of a razor. You could use a razor like that, sure. But I figure it'd be too awkward to hold for a long, hard slash across the guts like he uses. You'd have to tape the handle down to get a good grip on it. And then it'd be awkward to carry taped open. And it'd be a dead giveaway if anybody saw it. I figure he'd use a pocket knife. One small enough he could carry it legally. A pre-war imported one with real steel in it. So he could have one of the blades holding down to a razor's edge. Haircut? No, said Sweeney. What do you figure he uses? A knife or a razor? Yes, said Sweeney, getting up out of his chair. What do I owe you?
taste perhaps a bit crude for my taste. Yeah, well, one day you'll find out that crudity is in the eye of the beholder. Oh, it's hot in here. Let's take your clothes off. Be more comfortable. Huh? Oh, I think it's a pretty cheesy way to get a look at my fiance's tits. The only person who could ever miss this guy would be the subtle Seriously, it's only a film. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Project Exploitation, otherwise known as the Projects Pod. I don't know. I'm trying that one out because I've been getting a lot of complaints about the title of our podcast uh, by multiple people, not just a single person. And to all those haters, I just want to say that we will never change. But I don't know. Maybe we can... Uh, Maybe we can coin a little shorthand here. So, yes, welcome to Project Exploitation, the Projects Pod. My name is Nick Cheney. I am your host, of course, and with me is my co-host, Dan Jeremy Brooks. Dan, how are you? <clears throat> and blood is all around, like the bird with the crystal plumage. His beak is like a knife, like the bird with the crystal plumage. The killer is the wife. Do 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 Wow, we have instrumentals added to this recurring, uh, I don't want to say gag, uh, I will say bit, would that bit. be? Bit, yeah. Okay. Sounds right. Yes. You know, one of these days I'm just not going to ask you how you're doing, so uh, the joke will be on you. I know, I'll be so sad because I'll have had something prepared and I'll be like, I know. damn it, this was my best one yet! Why? That's right. So what would that a take on? Oh, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon Garfunkel. So. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I heard, I heard, I was like, bird with the crystal plumage, what kind of syllables is that? And I'm like, oh, like a bridge over troubled water. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> and it just seemed so epic that I had to go with it. It's a killer final line. I'll give you that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, accurate, too. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it really is. <laughs> um, so here we are tonight. We're going to be talking about... About our very first giallo film and then we'll get into the murky waters of what that means but uh, essentially it's an italian slasher movie if you want to crudely describe it of course the movie we're talking about is the bird with the crystal plumage did i already say that uh possibly it's okay i cannot remember okay we're already off to a rip-roaring start tonight <laughs> You gotta <laughs> forgive me, people, okay? I got my second vaccine, and they gave me the wrong vaccine, yeah, so I have true. two vaccines flowing through my body right now, um, and all I've got is this stupid t-shirt and second and third tail to show for it, so... <laughs> oh, boy. Now, it is possible that Nick has become superhuman with the mixing of the two serums, because sure. literally, they don't actually know what'll happen, but... So, I'm trying to look on the bright side, like... It could be that this will be like when Bruce Banner was supposed to gamma rays or something like that. And, oh, right. Know. Yeah. Or even the super serum yeah. for Mr. Uh, Steve Rogers. That's even better, actually. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll be uh, 
recording and of course tracking that progress on each and every episode from here until the end of this podcast mm-hmm. uh but for now let's talk about the bird with the crystal plumage uh directed by mr dario argento his very first film which is honestly kind of hard to tell when you watch it because it's just so damn good oh yeah it's yeah it's a remarkable debut i mean it's dazzling oh yeah uh, the movie did come out in 1970 and uh, made uh, quite a splash, at least over time, internationally, and really kick-started the career of Mr. Argento and pretty much the movement of Diallo filmmaking. Not that it was the first, but it was probably the first with real cultural cash. And we'll get into all that pretty soon, but uh, it's notable that this was, of course based on a prior written work. And Dan, why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Um, yeah, it was uh, it's by uh, Frederick Brown, who was both a mystery writer and a sci-fi writer. And he's one of those rare individuals who is as distinguished in one genre as the other. Anyway, so he wrote this book back in 1949. It was a novel called The Screaming Mimi. And uh, it's a good read. Angry, sexual, you know. No, I'm kidding. That's... <laughs> Sorry, that's from Three O'Clock High. Never mind that. Uh, but a couple of quick interesting things about Frederick Brown. Uh, he worked as a skip tracer before he started writing full-time. So that's kind of cool. So I imagine him doing kind of the midnight run thing, you know, which is kind of intriguing. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love that. And I guess he's considered one of the originators and one of the greatest practitioners of what they call short, short stories. You know, what we would now kind of refer to as flash fiction, where it'd only be like a couple lines. And he would create this entire story out of that. He's very famous for that, that. Might be his most famous contribution, it seems. And also, he seemed to kind of predict the rise of that whole, like, uh, tail wagging the dog phenomenon we see all the time now, where the writers are sort of hobbled by, you know, what we call fan service. You know, like, see, for instance, Star Wars 9, The Rise of Skywalker, etc. And uh, there was a quote from Brown the year he wrote this novel, and he said he was seeing an increasing trend in science fiction. He says to his friend Phil, he's like... They are taking over. The fans are taking over. They will occupy everything in 20 years. There won't even be any room for writers like us. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny uh, because in some ways that with the rise of the internet, that has sort of happened. And I think the other thing with the Screaming Mimi novel is that you can really see Brown back in 49 kind of partially helping, whether he meant to or not, to lay the foundations for the wave of like serial killer stories that we have now. So like I was thinking about, um, there's a declaration made by Jack the Ripper uh, near the end of the film from Hell and from Alan Moore's novel, a graphic novel as well. But he says something like, well, one day men will look back and say that I gave birth to the 20th century. And I was like, man, that is certainly got to be the case in a lot of ways, because you consider how serial killer narratives like dominate the cultural landscape now. And I mean, the killer in the screaming Mimi is even called the Ripper, even though it's set in Chicago. So I can see how uh, someone like Argento, who was doing pioneering work in Giallo would take some inspiration from this, although it's very much his own film too. I mean, he takes some basic beats and some basic broad ideas, but it's very much his own story. So yeah, it was a good novel. I really enjoyed it. Right on. And of course, uh, Argento was not the first to adapt it into a movie. Uh, there was an American adaptation of The Screaming Mimi. Do you remember who starred in that one? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Anita Ekberg. Yes, um, and right. I think of her mainly as, like, she was in a couple 
pretty great Fellini films. Like she was in La Dolce Vita a few years later, and I want to say Fellini's Eight and a Half. Yeah. So I, I think of her mainly from those, but I mean, yeah, she's not very well remembered now, but she was something of a of an ingenue in Hollywood, uh, even though I believe she was Swedish. I, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. But I haven't watched the film version, but that, that first film version is apparently very faithful to the original, while the bird with the crystal plumage is more of a... Um, it uses the novel as its jumping off point and like kind of a couple of its mise-en-scenes are based in part on it. But like I said, it becomes its own thing. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, looking forward for a moment, um, Argento made the movie opera from the eighties. Oh yeah. And of course that has a opera house. It has a killer who is lurking in the shadows and it's very very clearly inspired by the phantom of the opera and also has no interest in the phantom of the opera so (laughs) uh, i think that's a common uh occurrence when it comes to argento and and his uh ability to kind of reappropriate these you know materials and whatnot and actually that's a good segue because that's essentially what giallo is so the best way to explain giallo films for those who don't um, and probably to anger those who do know, considering there's uh, all sorts of differing opinions. Um, first, let's just take the etymology of the word, and giallo itself in Italian is Italian for yellow, the color. Mm. And these films were called giallo or yellow because of the fact that they were based on these crime and murder mystery thriller pulp paperbacks and all of them had yellow covers ah so oh that's so interesting yeah so it's literally an aesthetic uh moniker you know the theme of what you call this whole entire genre movement so that's where the word comes from where people obviously start to get contentious is the same thing you know we have in america with the film noir debate Mm. i.e what is film noir is it a list of aesthetics is it a genre is it both is it neither and obviously everyone kind of has their own idea so here's my idea of what uh giallo giallo is which is that it is a collection of films that were a part of a movement in italy from the 60s to 70s in which some but not all the following are usually included (laughs) um I guess the one thing that always is, is there's a murderer, okay? And usually an unknown murderer. So that's the big thing, is murder mystery is pretty much the plot template. Okay, sure. The rest is kind of a grab bag of a lot of tools that were used throughout, but maybe doesn't crop up in every gallery you see. But the killer concealing his or her identity with clothing, like black gloves and uh, trench coats and all that, because they usually appear in scenes when you can't actually see who they are until, of course, the third act reveal. Sure. Um, obviously, beautiful woman being butchered is a big thing. There's usually some sort of sexual impotence being uh, mm. struggled with, as we'll probably talk about in this movie. Um, it doesn't always mean that the plots are psychosexual, but Typically, there's uh, a form of sexual violence that exists outside of an actual sexual act, um, because it doesn't always have to be, for example, like rape, but it's usually some kind of misogyny or something like that that's being tapped into as to, you know, why these crimes are happening. And um, obviously, there's usually a quote-unquote 
detective in the middle of all of this who's really just a put-upon average Joe. He's not actually usually a detective. He just wants to solve it for himself or herself, uh, usually himself. Uh, and usually the cops are kind of jerks, and obviously they are in the beginning of this movie, but this one skirts that a little bit because they're actually pretty collaborative with True. the protagonist True. in this one. But usually it's them throughout the whole movie saying, you know, stay away, this is our case, you know, that kind of thing and whatnot. Hmm. So that's probably Giallo in the nutshell, is the whole murder mystery aspect um, with a unknown killer, and usually the twist is, you know, when it's revealed who it is, and a lot of these have, you know, twist upon twist so the reveal at the beginning of the third act that it's this person when in reality that person only committed these murders and actually the real killer comes along kills that one and it's revealed that that killer committed the other murders in the movie that kind of so there is a lot of labyrinthine uh convolution to some of these plots the bird with the crystal plumage being one of my favorites because it's actually pretty simple and we'll get into that Ooh, but that's a pretty common it's kind of like film noir you watch a Half time I watch a you know a Chandler film noir adaptation, I'm like, what the fuck just happened? I don't really know. You know, maybe I'm dumb. No, but- no, no. Well, there's that famous thing. I mean, I'm sure you've heard it, but uh, Chandler talked about the big sleep, and and he did say, now, I don't know if he was just being hyperbolic, but he said that even he wasn't sure what all happened at the end. Like the plot got <laughs> so complex that he couldn't remember and explain it very well yeah so when they did the film he was like you know don't don't worry about it you know just <laughs> do the film don't don't worry about being too super faithful because i'm not 100 percent sure it even works <laughs> yeah yeah and that you know much like film noir with that kind of black uh black and white gothic atmosphere um not gothic in the setting but just the the draping of the lights and whatnot and mm-hmm. gallo is very similar in that a lot of people myself included watch these mostly for the aesthetics and it's not to say that we don't like the plot because every once in a while there's a great one but it's almost like getting caught up in the plot really goes against what makes these movies so magical and such a thrill ride basically is taking these mise-en-scenes uh at their face value in the moment in media rays as they're happening and i think when approached from that because a lot of these productions are going to have bad dubbing a lot of them are going to have international casts where nobody's you know on the same script because you know they're all working from different translations and whatnot so mm-hmm. these things uh, it's really a good ground zero for starting to get into exploitation filmmaking because it forces you to kind of accept it at its own game because of the filmmaking practices that were so wildly different uh, mostly due to budget constraints and international uh, modes of filmmaking at this level of cheap filmmaking but also delivering some gorgeous imagery and uh, very cheap thrills so let's get into the bird with the crystal plumage i do you mind if i go first no not at all not at all right on so i love this movie i think it's pretty much a masterpiece in my book at least a masterpiece of the giallo genre i mean this is definitely one of the first ones i've saw it would have been one of the first most people saw if they were alive you know during its release um, while it's not the first one like i mentioned earlier that credit usually goes well always goes to mario bava but sometimes can split between whether it's the girl who knew too much or blood and black lace and Ooh. for my money it's blood and black lace because his jump from black and white to color i think kind of is what made these movies catch on more because 
no one really puts black and white giallos on their like top 10 best stuff even though they exist and and, and they are good sure um it's just not it, there's something missing when that's at the forefront well yeah that would be kind of tough i mean consider i mean I, I realize they're calling themselves yellow because of the yellowed covers and the yellowed pages but still i mean you do kind of want a certain amount of color in a in a giallo <laughs> you know absolutely and you know even some of the signifiers like black gloves well what do black gloves mean in black and white you know <laughs> like right. uh, some of these things are quite literally aesthetically driven so i for me that's why I definitely would consider Blood and Black Lace, which is a great movie, to be the first true giallo. And, um, but The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, uh, fantastic movie. One of the greatest sound mixing of any giallo because some of the giallos have horrible dubs. And it doesn't really bother me because I've watched so many of them now, so I'm pretty used to it. But rewatching The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, I kind of forgot just how well this dub works. I mean, obviously, the main actor who's speaking English is, I think his voice is dubbed by himself. But I will say that even though it's his voice and some people think that makes it easier, not always. I mean, it is hard to dub. That's why so many bad dubs exist. Like if you want to actually get that one-to-one feeling of the sound you're hearing and the visuals that you're uh, looking at, it's just not easy. And I think the cast overall in this movie is fantastic. You know, even like Susie Kendall, who doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, I feel like she comes alive in her scenes Mm -hmm. as a very put-upon girlfriend who's not really a victim in any true sense other than her one moment of distress. And even then, she technically escapes and saves the protagonist. And (laughs) True. I think think that's the other reason why i really enjoy this plot besides the fact that it's got a simplicity to it of who the killer is and how that's revealed but before that i love this protagonist this protagonist has this really weird i don't know almost dunce like quality to him (laughs) he's not the brightest you know protagonist and it almost makes it frustrating to watch because of the fact that when you watch these kind of movies you're usually watching a person who wants to piece it all together and so when you're following that kind of (laughs) um, mode of detective work and yet the person who's doing it is really just not that bright it can be frustrating at times but this guy um the actor um tony musante uh tony musante yes Yes, uh, who I just found to be extremely charming. I, I mean, I think that's the big thing, is that no matter what situation he was in, I was on his side, and I very much wanted him to figure it out. And that's the other thing, is that, before I pass it off to you, is that the plot here is, while I said earlier, simplistic in the convolution of the plot twist, it is a pretty deep well that you can dig into when it comes to its uh, thematic material, especially that of how it ties in with uh, art and what art can contribute to, how it can tie into violence. And it almost is so weird because Dario Gento, maybe not single-handedly, but certainly prominently, kicks off the Diallo movement in full force with this movie. And yet, even in doing that, he already has made a movie that perfectly encapsulates why the Giallo movement is so fascinating and you can't look away and how it can have a profound effect on you, even sure. if some people uh, look at it and don't get triggered to 
for lack of a better word, you know, <laughs> right? Because um, that's what happens, obviously, to our killer. Yes. So I'll leave it at that for right now. We got a lot of talk about, but Dan, what were your overall impressions of the bird with the crystal plumage? Oh well, uh, I mean, we were talking. It's it's an incredibly assured debut. I mean, it's shocking, like to the point where I'm like, well, I wonder if he spent a lot of time as a cinematographer or as an editor, or I mean, I should probably have done the research to be honest. But it, it was just so interesting to see how well he understood how to craft a movie, where to put the camera. I mean, just and of course he's working with just an incredible crew. And he didn't even want to make it, by the way. Oh, really? Really quick? No, go ahead. What's that? He had he liked the screaming Mimi, and he wanted you know a movie to get made. And I believe he brought it to his father, uh, Salvatore Argento. Mm. That is his father uh, when you see that name in the credits. And tried to get him to go find a director because that's who he worked with with other Italian directors. And or maybe he it was either he tried to give it to Salvatore or maybe it was Bertolucci because he worked with Bertolucci mm. too. Uh, Dario did. Because he actually almost contributed to Once Upon a Time in the West uh, to the script. Oh, really? Yes, it was him and another Italian writer. And essentially, none of Argento's stuff got used. But he was tapped, at least in the beginning stages, to write for it. That's kind of cool. So I can't remember, but Argento basically took the bird with the crystal plumage. I don't know if it was a story treatment or whatever. but uh, And was like, you know, this should be made. And then uh, I think it was Salvatore, his father, was like... Uh, yeah, I mean, you can make it if you want to, you know, <laughs> and then he was like, all right, like he, he didn't really want to, but and then of course the rest is history. Huh. No, I, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, well, you know, it's funny you were talking about the put upon detective type in a lot of these, uh, Gialos and, um, the Sam character in the novel, he's called Sweeney and he is also not a policeman. He's actually a reporter for a Chicago newspaper and he's just like basically coming off this wicked two-week bender. Uh, he he's basically like what um, I don't know if they still call it, but they used to call a jackpot drinker, where it would be somebody who could go a long period of time, like maybe months or even a couple years, where they would be sober and everything, and then they would get to a point where they would just either hole up in their room or just go on a spree and they would blow a ton of money. And sometimes they'll they'll call that jackpot drinking. And he definitely seems like a classic example of that. And the other thing is his interest is a lot like Sam. Well, it's a little different because um, Sweeney in the novel, his interest in the Ripper case is also selfish in the sense that he sees the would-be fourth victim behind glass in that scene that obviously inspired the Argento's gallery scene at the beginning. And he's instantly smitten with this girl. And he figures if he solves the crime, he'll get the girl, if you will. But as he proceeds, his conscience and his natural empathy uh, and emotional intelligence keep surfacing. So you can see some parallels there with Sam, the writer in this. Um, In a way, I sort of saw Sam Dalmas. He kind of reminds me of those novelists from like the 30s through the 50s, guys like, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald or Steinbeck or uh, Faulkner, who were lured out West to write for Hollywood and who consequently seemed to like loathe themselves for their decision while simultaneously viewing themselves as really above it all. And he he seems to have that, especially at the beginning where he's at the uh, Ornithological Institute, right? Where he's like, I don't need the book. I got the check, you know? So he has this almost like irritating self-confidence, even though, like you said, he's not necessarily the sharpest dude, but he's super self-confident. Like there's that part where he's like, 
well, it's not according to me. She came down the stairs. She did. Because the inspector's like, so according, you know, Morrissey's like, according to you, she, and he's like, no, not according to me. It's just, that's what happened. And he doesn't even seem particularly worried about Monica's continued health. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but so much as he's intrigued by the whole thing as a problem to solve, you know, like the puzzle being the frustrating aspect to the gallery struggle near the start where he can't seem to get his arms around what was what's wrong with the scene. I was going to say really quick for me, a lot of the movie, I think psychologically come down to the fact that I feel like he has felt so unsatisfied being abroad because of why he had to come out there in the first place that for this to kind of fall into his lap, he's got this ticking clock of before he's going to return back to the States. And if he can do this in his head, then at least there was some kind of meaning, even though it's really kind of, utterly meaningless because it's very random and by chance that it even happened right it's just kind of that i don't know ascribing meaning when there really is none uh and of course that's what he's dealing with and the other thing i was really quickly gonna say is that Mm -hmm. you know you had brought up the reason why he was there in the first place with the book that he had to write which shows just how egotistical he can be and also how not the sharpest tool in the shed the first scene shows that he was commissioned to write a book about legendary birds and not even he can figure out that that is a bird noise, which essentially would have solved the case for him to be in the right direction. So I like how idiotic it is because he's got his blinders on about the work he's doing, which he devalues when in actuality it would have helped the very thing that he thinks is going to be meaningful. Yeah, that's true. And if it wasn't for his friendship with Carlo, who's the ornithologist guy who puts him in touch with the, the society, I mean, he would have never made it to the zoo, of course, and that would there would never have been the climax in the denouement, if you will. But um, like you said, you know, he's a very charismatic actor and character. But it is weird. It's like you you can't tell if he's just not understanding the gravity of it because he really sloughs off. First of all, witnessing a near murder. And then the attempt on his life, like afterwards, and he sloughs it off so much that when he comes home to Julia, she doesn't even take him seriously at first, I don't think. She thinks he's just selling her a bunch of jokes like, you know, ah, ah, ah. it's just, it's interesting. Um, I just thought that was intriguing. Even him witnessing the murder, I think there's actually a good psychological reason that he doesn't take it very seriously. Because I think if you take, you know, the ending to that face value, which is that he realized that it was her attacking him and not the other way around. Right. That means subconsciously he may not have actually felt very threatened, right. you know, by this situation. He may not know why that's the case, but if he witnessed it and he did, and he had those preconceptions that were mixed up, the, the fact that he's not very troubled by it was maybe a clue because a lot of these movies are about the fragile masculinity of uh, Italian male culture. Um, not to say that there's none of that here, obviously, but this is specifically, I would say, Eurocentric in the way that it depicts uh, m- masculinity. Sure. No, that's, that's true. I mean, he does seem detached. And one thing I did think that was interesting, I don't know how you feel, because you touched on this earlier about the fact that uh, him and Inspector Morosini do actually collaborate pretty well. It's not a very antagonistic relationship. I mean, after a certain point, you know, in some ways, the film, I think, is almost like a rare reversal of roles for a mystery where you have this untrained, accidental amateur detective, like you're saying, who's 
who seems to be much less emotionally involved than the police inspector, who one would assume, as he's a professional and he does this every day, like he would remain more detached and guarded. But he's he's not. He's he's very dedicated. Now, he's not quite as emotional as like somebody like a Kurt Wallander, you know, like the Swedish detective who's like, you know, just uh, just raw emotions all the time when he's dealing with these cases. But it's Morosini shows a lot more passion sometimes than Sam. That said, I do like the rapport that develops between them. And I love especially that shot at the very end where they're on the talk show and Morosini's, they show his exhaustion and he's like falling asleep while they're talking. And you're like, man, this guy has been working like hell on this. It's just such a nice little touch to see that. Oh, and also I think Morosini has my favorite line in the movie, uh, which is, uh, he says, right, bring out the perverts, which I personally think, you know, that would work for all sorts of wonderful occasions to be quoted. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, like, you next track you make, Dan, you can just sample that bad boy right there. I should. Honestly, I watched it with Heidi a few days ago, and she responded and laughed the same way I did. She's like, whoa, what a great line. I'm like, I know. It's just, it's such a classic line. It's pretty great. It is. Uh, you know, I think you mentioned the idea that Sam doesn't feel very overly threatened or troubled. And I think a lot of that has to do with what I see as, like, maybe one of the main two or three themes kind of in the movie, and, and this is probably true of a lot of Giallo, which is this idea of, of this combination of voyeurism and containment, I guess. You know, at the beginning, you, you, it's very neatly pictorializes both those ideas in a, in a very compact way. I mean, it's, it's interesting how the basic act of watching characters on screen going about their day can go from feeling like neutral and even prosaic to terribly foreboding with the simple addition of a short freeze frames and the occasional sound effect of the camera clicking, you know, it denotes a voyeur's view. Someone's probably on welcome gaze at the very least, which certainly suddenly kind of makes us voyeurs too. And the freeze frame traps the person we're watching within that. Um, well, in, in, um, in theater, they would call it a proscenium arch, which is like the, the, the borders of the stage, you know, four sides are surrounding her because she's suddenly frozen in this freeze frame. And then once you realize it's a POV shot, I immediately start thinking, well, it puts my mind to a whole, just a brace of cinematic antecedents. I mean, there's William Powell's uh, Peeping Tom, yeah. right. Which I mean, not one of my favorite movies, although maybe I'd like it more now. I, I like the archers a lot, but the beginning of Halloween, of course, um, I was thinking about uh, fade to black. Oh, yeah. uh, it was a lesser known film, but I mean, it's, yeah. it was very much about the influence of movies on a killer's, actual style of killing and cruising obviously you got mm -hmm. uh adam mcgoyan's felicia's journey um and of course black christmas has a lot of wonderful pov shots that are yeah. incredibly groundbreaking which we talked about before yeah a lot of the friday the 13th movies you know have uh ah. jason's pov if not like his literal pov like just an overarching when he's in the room it's from his pov at the very least uh emotionally <laughs> right right we were talking about um obviously this being our general's first movie but i mean he has some really legendary talented collaborators in this and by the way i realized he did this the same year as storaro did bertolucci's the conformist which i think is one of the most wow. uh visually ravishing films ever made i mean that's just me but the cinematography at the beginning where you're seeing the the girl with the short hair and the in the plaid skirt and you know before you realize it's freeze frames yeah. you know it's, it, that she's being uh, watched. watched yeah it's it's so lush the photography is so lush and Anil Marconi's score is so soothing and that the intrusions of the camera clicking sounds and the freeze frames feel particularly 
like invasive. It's like you're going along this very like paradisical uh, sun dappled scene and then you, the clicks and freezes draw you out of it over and over. It's like you're in a dream that I don't know if you've ever had that thing where you've set your alarm to to go off every five minutes. And so you keep going back into this dream and then the alarm goes off. And you're like, why does the, what is this sound? You know? And it, that was how the clicks were. It was like, we go from this very paradisical scene to oh, ominous, super ominous all of a sudden, you know, cause she's being watched without her consent, you know? So no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. And I, obviously that whole opening scene is just a huge uh, predecessor to one of Argento's biggest fans, that of, of course, Mr. Brian De Palma. Yes. Um, all, you know, all of his films are heavily indebted to Argento's aesthetics. In fact, I feel like while De Palma was routinely ripping off Hitchcock's uh, mode of filmmaking when it comes to, uh, you know, those plots and whatnot, sure. uh, Argento is probably his most. A spiritual successor when it comes to defining what makes a De Palma film, and obviously they're still uniquely his as well. But um, you know, he he'd be nowhere without having Argento coming out around the same time that actually that he was coming around too. It's an interesting point. Yeah, and you know, as you mentioned earlier with Halloween and whatever, that's another good point, which is the fact that Giallo, the movement in Italy, single-handedly pretty much created over here in america the slasher movement um a lot of american directors uh, were watching these movies at that time and a lot of them wanted to obviously uh make their own and that's kind of how the slasher craze is born because obviously like i said that these movies are kind of very euro flavored uh they're always usually about a very kind of pretentious upper elite protagonists and you know usually the people that are picking them off are uh, a lot of times you know kind of a class divide or for some reason or maybe not a divide and they're just bumping off their own class but (laughs) we took it the other way you know we went straight for the immoral teenagers who don't even have a life yet and and so anyway but the, the direct causality there from the uh, Italian giallo movement to the slasher craze and obviously Black Christmas being kind of the linking movie in Canada, <laughs> uh, you know, between the two. So it's an interesting point. I mean, I never really thought about it before. I mean, I, and I thought about the giallo and the slasher films in the late 70s and 80s, but I never really thought about, you're right, the class distinctions there. I mean, you've got, when you get to Friday the 13th, it's suburban, almost blue collar in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. A lot of these teens are not well-to-do per se. And so it is an interesting new wrinkle that the Americans brought to it. No, yeah, they were not going to a summer camp that was for, you know, preppy kids or anything <laughs> like that. It was right. they, they were going because their parents either weren't watching them or because their parents couldn't watch them or whatever. Um, therefore, they were going to get up to no good and they deserve to die. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, you mentioned De Palma, and, and I'll, I'll definitely want to talk about him much later on, actually. But you're right about the fact that I think some of Argento's almost dreamlike quality to the voyeurism is so similar to what you see later in De Palma, even though they were contemporaries. Like you said, it does seem like De Palma was taking a lot of notes, like, oh, this is interesting. It's like, I mean, for me, like the whole dreamlike quality of the scene of Monica at the gallery, and it's dreamlike also in the way that Sam is, like his 
ineffectualness. You know, it's like he's stuck inside a glass container. So again, you know, yeah. he's a voyeur, but he's also contained and his inability to help is shown for like such a long time. It's like agonizing minutes of just watching the would-be murder, well, feels like minutes, watching the would-be murder victim through the doors. And Sam's like, he's reduced to basically a spectator or voyeur against as well. Well, but also he chooses to watch the whole time. True. You know, True. obviously one, I guess, could make a case that like he was doing that out of like, I guess, helpfulness in case there was something. He- but after a certain while, there was literally nothing he could do. So it almost would have made more sense to turn around and only watch the street. So that way you could try to flag down more people, uh, uh, you know, then you get those ineffectual strangers who walk by. And uh, and even that part felt like a dream where he's Very much knocking. So. And he is, apparently that glass is so thick that <laughs> you can't hear a peep out of it when he's on like the direct other side of it, which I, I felt that was also very uh, dreamlike logic. Very much so. And, and, and I mean, there's that shot where he, uh, the camera swivels around and you see this pedestrian and his face is like right up in the glass. And it's like, he went from like, nobody's there to suddenly this guy. And of course you realize immediately he's, he's not a danger or anything. He's just like, Whoa, what's going on? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and of course the fact that Sam doesn't apparently speak Italian cause he's like police and the guy's like, mm, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, in the, the span of that whole scene with him in the glass, it quite literally ranges in the entire span from see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. You know, if <laughs> first he sees something he can't understand, then uh, neither party can hear each other. And then, of course, he's not allowed to speak, you know, literally get it out and articulate it. So That's a great, great point. Uh, but it, it does go on. And I love, I mean, I don't know if it goes on for minutes, but it feels that way to me. It's like, it goes on to, to the point where he kind of settles into a like a detente with the doors, or at least some acceptance. He, and he knows he can't open it, and the time starts crawling by, and he ends up like sitting on the floor with his hands in his pockets waiting for the police. I, I mean, again, I don't know if this was an influence, um, but it sort of reminded me of the climax to Uncut Gems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. with uh, er- Eric Bogosian's character, you know, he's stuck there sweating in that locked vestibule and he finally just sits down because he realizes like nothing he can do at that moment. So he's watching his money either about to go away or be tripled or whatever, but there's nothing he can do. And he basically has to, he's, he's reached the acceptance phase <laughs> of just sitting there. He's like loosening his tie. I felt like I, I wondered if maybe uncut gems was playing a bit with this this scene you know and even like the score like becomes more sedate and resigned the woman on the other side of the glass just bleeding gradually becomes like this immovable fact and the score gets sort of waltzy and chimey and sam starts like scanning over the room like hmm what's the deal with all these sculptures hmm yeah it's just so bizarre you know i i absolutely loved it it's uh, such a striking scene i could see it very easily being very iconic for a lot of filmmakers. Yeah. I, you know, you just pointed out that there's a lot of sculptures in that gallery. And I think that that's actually very intentional because I, I like the idea that in now there's many different kinds of art. But when in this movie, just to almost like drive the point home, I love that most of the art that's featured in that particular moment in time in the gallery is very physical. You know, it's not just canvases, but it's, it's these actual protruding uh, uh, almost objects. And as we see at the very end of the movie, they have the uh, literal capacity to either trap people or even 
even to hurt them. I mean, there's spikes quite literally on the entire thing that Monica pushes uh, onto Sam. And, and of course, that probably gets us into our big theme of the entire movie uh, as far as what maybe gets the most lip service, which is the idea of art and its role Mm. in media and violence contained therein. Is it something that it truly does stay within the picture or is there something that does, uh, you know, affect the real world or, or vice versa? Mm. Dan, what, what are your thoughts, either just how the movie uh, symbolizes this or even just what you think the movie ends up saying? Do you have any uh, first impressions? Well, you know, it's funny because um, in my notes, I remember writing down at the end, I said, see, now we know for certain that art kills, you yeah. know, because <laughs> I mean, it does. I mean, and it's not just that the the huge slab of, of, of like an Iron Maiden thing that pins him to the floor, but I mean, the painting sparks the killings that triggers it. Yeah. I find that very fascinating. Um, you know, one thing I will say, although actually just about the gallery thing before we get into the art so much oh, yeah. is um, because it's such a bravo scene. I mean, it's just like, I've watched it probably four or five times now. Yeah. And like you said, the sound design is brilliant and the editing and just, you really have no idea. At least I didn't have any real idea what was going to happen. I assumed she was dead basically. And then when they're like, oh, it's just a fleshman, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then of course at the end it's revealed why. Yeah. I was going to say it makes that whole scene. It takes away some of the dream logic, which I love, which is the idea that she's, just plain captive instead of running away. Well, you know, and the other thing too is, of course, you realize at the end that um, Sam's big claim to fame, which is that he uh, got somebody to call the police for Monica, you realize, of course, no, that was really the husband. He probably called them as soon as he ran out of the room. So Sam's big heroic move was yeah. not probably him at all. I mean, not not to say what he did was bad, but you know, I was going to say. So, yeah. but I mean, the whole time during that. Again, while he's contained, he's a voyeur, he's stuck there and he's looking, but he can't do a damn thing about it. We become more aware of Monica's groans and sighs, and they take on this orgasmic texture. And it reminded me a little of uh, Cloris Leachman, rest in peace. Uh, there's this thing at the beginning of Kiss Me Deadly, the opening credits, where she's gasping for breath. She's like getting her breath back. Yeah. And it takes on this extremely sexual quality. Um, That'd be an interesting film to actually do an episode on one day. But yep. but the funny thing about the orgasmic thing is that it at first I was like, well, maybe I'm just I'm a guy and I'm I'm being a little being a little hetero at the moment here. But later, you know, when you see the stalking of the fourth and fifth victims, and then later still during this scene where Sam is being chased by needles, and then of course again, even during the climax, the score by Morricone even starts adding percussive women's moans and sighs. It's like it's like um it's almost a feedback loop where um it's like that band Mission to Burma. They used to have this thing where there was a fourth guy on stage who would just tape what they were currently playing and he would spit it back out at them at different speeds with different effects, dub effects and the like. You know, the score becomes this almost like um infernal, uh photo negativized version of like that Sergei Gainsborough Jane Birkin track, you know? Oh yeah. Uh Je t'aime. You know, yeah. Je t'aime. It's like oh, Je t'aime becomes 
you know, je bless, which I believe means to wound. It's one of the few words in French I know, so don't be too impressed. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I would, I would hope you wouldn't. Uh, you can't be duped that easily. So, but the whole uh, orgasmic quality to Ramones in the gallery makes a lot of sense too when you realize later that we see Monica's euphoria when she kills. I realized looking back, and again, I only caught this really the second time watching it, but that scene is really her unplanned, totally unexpected chance for her to play act as one of her victims. Yeah. So in retrospect, of course- And she has a voyeur. Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. But I mean, so it makes sense that she would be very sexually aroused by this kind of impromptu thing. I mean, we even see at the end, the obsession to kill- totally overtakes the craft of trying to stay alive. I mean, when she kill, goes to kill Sam, I mean, she's totally going to be found out. She doesn't care. She's just in this extreme uh, elation, and she doesn't even bother to protect herself anymore. I don't know, it's, just, it's interesting to see, again, like that. Like I know you said the, in Giallo, there's a lot of, a, a, there's a, often a psychosexual element. And in this one, of course, it's turned on its head a bit because the, the killer in the end, at least some of the killing is done by a woman. But of course, it's also triggered, like we were saying, by a, by a painting of a violent uh, act done to her. Sexual act, yeah. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, you know, speaking of, about the trauma thing, I think, I don't know if you feel this way, but I can't, I can't think of many movies that do a better job of pictorializing, like, the lingering uh, psychic effects of witnessing a brutal act of violence, you know, like traumatic events, they have a way of burrowing into your brain and flashes of those images will just like bob to the surface at often extremely unpleasant times or un- unhelpful times at least, you know, yeah. and any chain of thoughts might suddenly land you in the midst of one of those deeply unpleasant memories while your cortisol levels go through the roof. And of course it's traumatic memories that first activate Monica's killing spree, but also Near the beginning, we see these lightning quick edits that keep appearing while Sam is trying to forget the gallery incident. He's come back to his apartment and the edits just keep hitting him. They're like pummeling him. You know, it reminded me very much of that kind of intrusion of memory edits in things like uh, uh, Sidney LeMay's The the Pawnbroker or a lot of Nicholas Rogue has that. Oh, yeah. Or even Upstream Color, that Shane Carruth movie has a bit of that. Yeah. And then, you know, when you add to that, like, after they've made love, there's like the metronome is going behind them and they're kind of laughing. Yeah. It's almost like the telltale heart where it's like, no matter how, how hard you're trying to forget about it and pretend it's no big deal, the memory keeps like surging back, Yeah, you know? And I, in a way it's, it, it, I found that really fascinating to see that kind of trauma, not just in the case of Monica, of course, but in the case of Sam who keeps sloughing it off, like, nah. Ain't no thing. You know, he makes a big joke out of it, but it keeps coming back in his mind. And I don't think it's just the puzzle of it. I think it's also his, his, just the fact that he's a human being and he can't deny the fact that he's been in some way traumatized by this. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think we're going to touch on trauma and art uh, when we come back from this little break we're going to take. Mm. Uh, but sit tight and listen to this wonderful theme song. You're acting like a 
felt like this in my life. It's kind of some fucking movie, you know? We're a fucking team. We're like thirsty and hot. Oh, Seriously, it's only a film. Hello, and welcome back to the Projects Pod. That's right, Project Exploitation. Uh, I don't know if that'll catch on or not. We'll see. Uh, we're talking. We will make it so that it's streets ahead of all other slang, my friend. Ah, look at that. Well, community reference. Mm-hmm. Love it. What is that? Well, if you have to ask, you're street behind. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, good show. Um, <laughs> great, great show. We're talking the bird with the crystal plumage. And just before the break, uh, which, by the way, I just had a wonderful bottle of J&B on my break. Uh, that the whole thing? Is to, yep, the whole thing. Uh, but no, that is another staple of Gallo films. There is a bottle of J&B in like oh. half of the shots in any Gallo film. So literally you can count them. So That's really interesting. I do remember there being a fair amount of that at Sam's apartment. Yep. That is not unique to this movie. That is a staple of the genre. I don't know if it was a... I, I, I've never looked into the actual history behind it. I don't know if it's the sponsorship or whatever, but yep. Uh, and I'm talking like label always facing the camera, you know, that kind of uh, right. placement. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a drinking game in and of itself. <laughs> this, that kind of surreptitious product placement you would only see in, say, the mid to late 80s. You know, they just always had to have a fucking Pepsi, you know, right there on screen. Just Pepsi one label towards the, you know, anyway, sorry. No. So. We're going to get into art. One thing I do want to talk about uh, is a reaction to what you were saying just before the break about the orgasmic scene uh, that Monica puts on for our protagonist. And, you know, you're you're spot on uh, with all that and that I think it's definitely this um, weird uh, bravura performance uh, that is sexually arousing and whatnot. And the other thing, too, is that it becomes that, I, you know, I had mentioned earlier about how a lot of these films are kind of psychosexual mm-hmm. uh, in nature, even when a lot of them aren't featuring a lot of sex. You know what I mean? Sure. And I think that's obviously the case as to what you just described. But to even piggyback off of that, I would say that that whole scene in and of itself is technically one big visual metaphor for impotence. Because what is impotence if not forced voyeurism? You know, right. it is the act of putting on a show and quite literally not allowing the uh, other person in the room to be a participant. Uh, so right. all he can do is bang on the glass and uh, feel those feelings and none of the, uh, shall we say, reward. Because as much as it's a scary tableau or whatever, uh, I completely with you and think that it is very psychosexual and there is a reason why he's not looking away. <laughs> right, right. I mean, in some ways it reminds me a bit of um, uh, the scene near the beginning of Only God Forgives where uh, the Ryan Gosling character, um, his um, Thai girlfriend or maybe Malaysian, gosh, I'll, I'll, no, it was Thailand because it's set in Bangkok. She ties him, no pun intended, to the chair and then she proceeds to do this and rather... she bangs cock, no pun intended. God damn it. I'm trying to run a clean operation here, you know? And every time we start scraping respectability. No, I know. You're right. 
anyway, but so she ties him to the chair uh, because he, you know, I mean, this is consensual, but she ties him to the chair and then she proceeds Thank to Thank you kind for of, clearing that up. Well, you know, you never know. No, I'm just saying we were all concerned about Ryan Gosling. You felt like maybe Ryan Gosling was overpowered by this this little slip of a woman, you know, but it's possible. Yeah. But anyway, but then she proceeds to do this highly sexualized performance for him and it's it's almost like he's punishing himself it's or in a sense it's it's like you said it's a it's a metaphor for impotence in a sense yeah i completely agree so yeah let's talk about our collective impotence you and me dan <laughs> uh so much to say here <laughs> we're gonna move on and talk about trauma and art and um one thing i wanted to start with is that i you know you had earlier said that you can't recall at least off the top of your head like another movie that correct me if i'm wrong but you it's something to the effect of like another movie that portrayed trauma quite uh this clearly in in its distillation of the triggering effects that can kind of crop up yeah right i i, I guess do you, do you want to rephrase what you were saying or am i on to something before i go off on something else oh no that's basically it it was just um that uh you have these traumas then you kind of try to move past them and then as time goes on and rather un, you know un- unfortunate moments they sort of bob to the surface all of a sudden because a word or a phrase or a um image you see or just whatever it is a train of thought leads you to there and it's kind of like it can be very alarming you know it's like you know and i think the editing in those sequences is so good at showing that he's trying to put it out of his head and it keeps just keeps just kind of pummeling him again and again well then i would say i completely agree and to add to that then i i agree and not only that but i also think that the ending the reveal so to speak that she the killer saw this painting and the painting itself was technically an actual visualization of the attack that she herself was a victim of and this i think says a lot about trauma and the way humans process it but that when she then saw it from this technically speaking a third party perspective right she identified with the killer and not with the victim right and you know it's so funny i remember the first time i saw this that kind of blew me away not because of like the twist aspect but just of the profundity of that you know realization because i feel like that is what it's like when you are a victim of trauma because even at the end of the day sometimes you still have this kind of empathetic feeling uh which can then feed into your own self-loathing about what you deserve and what you don't you know oh definitely yeah so it's like when you remove the safety not safety blanket but the the pretense of that it's you in one of those two roles you ascribe yourself to the role because you think badly of yourself Mm. Because of the trauma that you, so I mean, it's such a vicious uh, circle, and I absolutely love that. Besides the fact that the reveal was a good twist, uh, it, it's just a really good, uh, like I said earlier, distillation of that kind of dissociative effect that trauma can have on you and the way it can fuck you up. No, it's true. I mean, and uh, you know, of course, I mean, it's it's a cliche because it's so true that I mean, people who are sexually abused or physically abused or both as children grow up and do the same thing to others especially their own children it's like you said it's a very vicious cycle and and unfortunately it's not just um a device for the film this is a really it rings really true 
you know, it, it, I mean, we there's a lot of talk these days about triggering, of course. It is a good word for that. I mean, when it's properly used. I don't even like to hear the word trigger, if, if I'm just being honest. I'm tr- you're triggered by the word trigger. So, like, when you're... Yes. Only because people use the hard R, okay? Right. I'm okay with trigger, mm-hmm. but... <laughs> I, I think it's extremely offensive when people go all in on the word. Well, so, yeah, it should be trigger. We're, we're canceled before episode 10. Okay, and yes, we've rightly been canceled for this. So, like, yeah, so when you when you watch a Roy Rogers serial and he talks about his horse trigger, you're like, dude, yep. you can't do that shit anymore. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, it was a different time back then, you know, so. It was a simpler, better time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, uh, but but going back to the trauma thing, it's like you know the, the painting that's the triggering painting. Um, well, it suggests well, it more than suggests vaginal wounding, mutilation that you'd almost expect from what I would think of as a as a femicide crime. You know, it reminds me of those uh, historical crimes that uh, female protagonist, the she character in Antichrist, is researching. You know, Lars von Trier's Antichrist. It's interesting because, I mean, she does the same thing. Uh, the, the killer, I should say, Monica does the same thing in, in great, very horrific detail. I mean, during the fourth murder, there's all those close-ups of Monica's uh, open mouth intercut with the forced removal of the fourth victim's panties. And then when you look at the earlier crime scene photos that they're looking at the police station, there's clearly a highly sexualized placing of the stockings and the panties pulled around their ankles. You know, it's very uh, disturbing. And yet, at the same time, I very hot. Oh God, damn you! I am cutting that for sure. I mean, you left way too much pause. I had to. I was trying to get in. I there. was trying to find the right. Yeah, so hot. No, uh, but I felt like there's uh, even after we learn all this, there's a certain like watching the film again. There's a certain inscrutability to the killer's motives that never really lifts at the end, even when it's revealed to be Monica. And I don't mean this as a negative sense. In fact, it reminded me a lot of the torturer murderer in Takashi Miike's uh, audition, Mm. you know, where the trauma that seems to jumpstart her behavior, at least for the audience, remains kind of vague, unshaded in. And in the case of Miike's auditions, antagonist and Monica, in both cases, the reasons are not overly explained, which maybe is okay, you know? No, I'm with you. And although I will say at least one reason you can probably chalk the inscrutability up to is the fact that it is revealed that the husband committed some of the crimes. Yes. Because the thing is, there's a parallel subplot that's happening in the movie that also then dubs tales and becomes part of the main plot, which is the idea that there's a serial killer out there. You know, like there's who and what happened in the gallery. And then there's also a jack the ripper like figure you know at large and so we just assume it's the same one in the one which is ironic because the answer becomes both yes and no which is it was related but the actual act of seeing them as separate incidents would have maybe clued them into that there are separate people and that you know mm-hmm. one's murderous rage or whatever kind of fueled the other person's right um so that that's at least one reason that there can be a little bit uh i i would say that i would let a little this befuddlement just sit there because it, it kind of works in the favor of, of the answer to this puzzle well, yeah, man. I mean, that's one of the things I always wonder about is, well, which scenes are Alberto Ranieri uh, covering Monica's tracks and which scenes are Monica herself on the loose, you know? And yeah. 
I mean, the two times we see uh, Ranieri and Monica struggling with the knife, you, you realize, of course, in retrospect, he's trying to get the knife away from her. <laughs> right. It's more of a struggle to not kill than it is. Made. Right. Yeah. Like, like in the novel, for instance, the guy who started the stand-in for the Ranieri character, he realizes about after the third murder what's happened, and he's trying to stop her but also trying to throw the police off the track. So it's in a way he's partly responsible as well, although not maybe to the extent that Rainieri is in, in the film. So, um, I mean, obviously we've talked about it at length already, but I mean, art is a central, uh, I don't want to say character. Mm-hmm. Not like New York city is like the main character. <laughs> in this yes. Um, I have to admit, I've, I've grown tired of hearing people go, it's almost like the city is one of the characters. I'm like, if the city doesn't actually have a line of fucking dialogue, it's not a character. I don't give yeah. a damn what you say. No. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go on. No. And so I, I, but art is obviously a central vessel for a lot of themes and emotions uh, that are very tangled up into a lot of knots in this movie. But it is so ever present uh, throughout definitely obviously the the catalyst for the entire thing takes place in the art gallery itself but then there's even uh the art gallery almost folding into itself at the tableau because once he's trapped in the glass the art gallery becomes its own art piece uh, almost like an installation that he's watching and yes that in and of itself it feels like a stand-in for giallo as an art form and and to whether it has you know artistic value or not and it this just carries throughout the entire movie i mean you know one of the characters obviously is triggered by the the painting which also means that you know trauma itself is quite literally captured via a painting uh the sculpture traps the protagonist at the end um our protagonist literally takes a detour before the climax to go see bob ross uh by way of bluto from animal house <laughs> yes at his little uh farmland <laughs> And, uh, you know, and has conversations with him. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love the Berto Consalvi character. Uh, I, I think I mentioned this to you the other day, but it's worth repeating. Uh, there's a part <laughs> where he gets up and he puts exactly one brush stroke on the canvas. Yeah. And then he says to himself, ah, genius. It yep. made me laugh out loud by myself. You know, it's the portrait of the artist as a self-satisfied prick who just thinks every single oh, yeah. damn thing he does is just marvelous. <laughs> He, and you know he's got he's got to live with those cats, which look like a hassle. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, then a, he's he's got to fatten them up and then kill them and eat them. I mean, it's very difficult for him. Yeah, it's it ain't it, you know it's hard out there for an artist living in the country by himself with no doors to his house. You know, I was gonna say you have to climb a ladder uh, mm-hmm. to get up there, which is like the most artiste thing ever totally um so yeah but i mean like you know even that passage obviously centers around art i mean you know he's there under the false pretense of pretending to want to buy his art you know so i mean art is everything in this movie and obviously that's not unintentional but it 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 does bear you know mentioning because that's i mean you know a lot of the times in the reason why we're doing this podcast is because we we try to break down what is art and does it still exist in these types of pictures and you know and obviously 
we don't really ever have to have that debate because you and I are doing this because we believe that no matter what. True. Yeah. It's 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 something of an article of faith for us already, I think, at this point. Yeah. But obviously, it's always going to be a question uh, to people who are not always into these things. And that you know, can be an uphill battle at times because you have to try to get them to see your perspective on something that just uh, aggressively puts them off. Mm-hmm. But you know, a movie like this just knocks it out of the park in how it really depicts that these things exist. They are pieces of art, whether you want them to be or not. I mean, that's the scary part, right? Like, these are not just found articles of, like, what is this? How did, like, <laughs> it didn't just happen. Uh, you know, a crew got together, somebody wrote the script, mm-hmm. a director directed, and these things deserve to be dissected because if we're not careful maybe you know these can be triggering and i think i love these types of movies and i love what they have to say or sometimes i hate what they have to say and kind of love that i hate it and therefore i get off on it i don't know whatever sure no i get i always have a a reaction to them and for me that's what art is it's reacting and it's engaging which is why i will watch any of these things over you know, maybe a more mediocre movie any day. It's just because I want to sit there and not be passive. And yes. it's hard to watch a movie like this and be passive. And that doesn't always strictly mean that it's simply for the cheap thrills, even though I do love those. Uh, we can talk a little bit later about some of the great kills or whatever. But sure. like this movie is composed gorgeously. I mean, there's not a shot in this movie that's wasted. Some of the, I forget which character is walking through the apartment um, and going up the stairs, but the shot from when they're first at the landing of the stairs and then the light in one of the floors goes off as they're ascending the stairs. I mean, that whole sequence is such a weirdly simple sequence in that it's actually kind of like a transition sequence because the action is not yet really on display. And yet, like, if that's what the downtime in this movie looks like, I mean, the rest of the movie is also uh, immaculate in its uh, conception. Uh, so what about you, Dan? Is there any shots that you remember to be quite striking? Well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, uh, Vittorio Storaro was one of the greats. I mean, he did Apocalypse Now. He did Reds, uh, 1900. Obviously, I mentioned The Conformist, uh, Last Tingo in Paris, uh, The Last Emperor. Just a great many absolutely extraordinary films. But I mean, there never feels like there's a moment where there isn't something being deliberately done, not not just to play on our nerves and to play us like a piano, like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock used to always say, but also to reinforce the themes that you and I've been talking about. You know, like you were talking about the thing with, um, I think it's the fifth victim. There's this triangle of staircases pictured around the fifth victim. Yes. It's very geometric. Very geometric. It totally accentuates this trapped helplessness this inevitability of her death um i I think that's absolutely an extraordinary shot so i mean you noticed it i noticed it but it also ties in so well the theme it's not just beautiful but it fits so perfectly with these ideas of compartmentalization or containment and 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 there's even like i don't know what you think about this but there's this thoroughly weird imagery at the beginning of that cat inside the glass cases at the Ornithology Institute. Yeah. It's a, one of the most photogenic cats and just a great cat oh, actor. Yeah, or it's almost, it's really a jellical cat in many ways, you know, because jellical cat. No, jellical cat. Oh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I can't decide what's weirder, man. The mere presence of the tabby within. 
the glass cases or the fact that it must so obviously be super frustrated by the fact that it's amongst all these, I would assume, normally delectable birds that are actually just stuffed with sawdust because they're just fake, you know. So, I mean, this, so it's, it's, it's talk about impotence. You have this cat who's a voyeur, yeah. he's contained, and he's also totally ineffectual. There's no birds for him to hunt or kill or eat. I mean, it's just, he's just some tabby just sitting there going, I don't know what to do now, man. You know, it's just such an odd image and it's never explained. Sylvester and Tweety, the uh, red light district diaries. (laughs) Yep, exactly. I mean, I think we've, uh, we've all seen those uh, underground cartoons, you know, from maybe you have. Bring in the perverts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, such a great line. Uh, well, you know, the other thing, too, is that you talked about the analogies between art and giallo, art in the film and giallo and, and film as art in itself. You know, you were talking earlier about um, Susie Kendall, who plays Julia. Um, she's very unconventionally written and played. At first, she seems very oddly unconcerned for Sam's, like, psychic well-being or the fact that he, that, like, a knife-wielding maniac is on the loose. But... Again, I think he might have just played it off in such a way that she just thinks he's kidding. But there's other times where she's almost like comically sex preoccupied. Like she's like all but flinging herself at him on several occasions when he's in the middle of trying to research the case. But yet at the same time, there's that scene where she walks in with the groceries and he's just hung up that print of the painting, the triggering painting in question. And she's like, oh, this gives me the creeps, which I totally understand. It's a very creepy, weird painting. I don't understand why anyone would want it in their home. But so she's uh, making out with them, but then she turns her gaze towards it again. And I think the scene cuts there. It's like she's like us, sort of repulsed, but intrigued at the same time. And I, I think that's a pretty good metaphor for maybe exploitation in general, but also, but I mean, particularly Gallo, you know? Yeah. And it's inextricably tangled up in her sexual preoccupation. You know, like this isn't something mm-hmm. she just thinks about on her downtime it's also where her (laughs) mind wanders uh, at its most ecstasy centered so yes not because you understand it but because you don't have to understand it it's impulsive and that's just how it works so and i mean if we're not really being judgmental i mean we we know all sorts of people who who feel that way and, and perhaps even ourselves we have those impulses too so oh so interesting side note something i found out which i think you will enjoy especially Susie kendall who plays julia is one of the fully quote, cameo screamers in Peter Strickland's movie Barbarian Sound Studio from 2012. Oh, yeah. I thought that might tickle you because, so, isn't that cool? It does tickle me. Consider me tickled. Oh, good. I'm glad. I, I tickled me, and I was like, she oh, did. Just a bunch of tickle monsters. <laughs> We're like, it's like tickle me Elmo up in this plate. No, anyway. Uh, but I mean, she hasn't done like a movie in years, but she did it for this because Barbarian Sound Studio is very much both an homage and in some ways a critique of some of the excesses of Giallo. Uh, and it, it's very funny while also being very horrifying and, well, psychosexual, psychotic. There's a lot of that. Um, it's basically about a guy who's slowly going crazy. It, you know, in this case, it's again, it's like Sam. It's an English-speaking guy in Italy. He doesn't speak the language at all. He's totally surrounded by these folks he doesn't understand in a culture he doesn't get. And he's kind of slowly isolated and going crazy. So I thought it was kind of funny that Susie Kendall actually did one of the screams, the cameo screams, as they're called in the credits. So I thought that was pretty cool. That's 
that's pretty great. She's awesome. She's mm-hmm. um the she played the main character in uh, Sergio Martino's Torso, uh, which is another ah. Giallo film from I think seventy four. It's one of my favorites. It's probably in my top three Giallo pictures of all time, and it's oh, uh, wow. fantastic. Uh, there's a scene in Torso toward the very end, and anyone who's seen it will know what I'm talking about. In which a character is trying to hide from the killer and not make a sound, and it's probably. Uh, one of my favorite instances of tension ever committed to celluloid. Wow. It just utter absence of sound during that sequence paired with the, the action that's being taken place. It's just one of the biggest nails in the sofa type, you know, moments. So, so good. Sounds fantastic. I got to watch it. I, uh, yeah. Well, well, you know, I think Susie Kendall, I, from what I remember, I knew her initially as a pretty famous British uh, fashion model, like she was kind of one of the it girls for a, a period of years. So now granted, she actually turned out to be a really good actor too, which isn't always the case. Sometimes models break into film and it kind of fizzles. They just, you know, just because you're a great model doesn't make you a great actor or vice versa. But she, I remember her being one of those kind of late 60s swing in London models, if I remember correctly. So yeah. she did quite good. I actually thought there was a lot of interesting... I think one of the other things, actually, that sets this movie apart from so many movies that are about serial killers or mysteries is like the richness of the characters. And I mean, especially even the supporting characters. There's so much interesting interplay, really well-calibrated dynamics with between the actors, which is funny because, as you pointed out, a lot of times we're pretty sure they weren't even speaking the same language as they were performing and their stuff was dubbed later. But, um, you know, like the... Um, Fayena character. Yeah. He's so insanely secretive. He's only in like two scenes, but he's hilarious because he like, says like the opposite of everything. He'll actually kill up be like, yeah, no, yeah. but uh, maybe tomorrow. I know. It's like, he's always contradicting himself. He'll be like, he asked for money. And then he's like, no, nah, I don't want any money. And then he takes it. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know anything. And I don't know anybody, but he also seems to know everybody. <laughs> it's like the most cartoonish like depiction of plausible deniability ever. Right, exactly. And he's like, I couldn't find a single thing. I couldn't find anything. But here's what I found. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> absolutely hysterical. I love it. Yeah. I also love the sudden appearance, I think it's about 40 minutes in, of Reggie Nalder as Needles, the assassin. I think that is a masterpiece of casting because Nalder is one of those guys who you've seen in a bunch of movies, always as a villain, usually a uh, like a sidekick or a, like a Bond villain type. But he brings like, whenever he's in a movie, he brings decades of recognizable, you know, bag man menace to any film he's in. There's no backstory needed. His past iconography just fills in all the gaps. He just has one of those faces with that built-in sinisterness. He's like uh, like Danny Trejo. Or uh, Lee Marvin, or like uh, Stephen McHattie, or like Billy Drago. What are those guys? Tom Hanks. Yes, of course. Yes, Tom Hanks, who's totally uh, unrelatable. Just the most. Yeah, he's a horrible man. Grizzliest, uh, brutal, brutal character actor. Well, he raised Colin Hanks, who, if you've seen Dexter season six, you'll know that he's he's a horrible, horrible man. And there's no way that's acting. That's too good to be acting. I think he's he, Colin Hanks is really a bad man. I don't think there was a lot of acting being done in Dexter post season four, and even that's being generous. Harsh but fair, unfortunately. Yeah. But Colin Hanks is a bad man. I think we can all agree that he's a truly despicable human being. <laughs> that's not acting at that point. Yeah. 
Just saying. The character I actually liked the most uh, was the Gerulo Solong character. Yes. Like, for one thing, despite being a pimp, he seems a decent bloke, oddly enough. That's what I was actually going to bring up, is I love the portrayal of that, because that's another way that I think Argento is very interestingly empathetic to all characters that show up, because here we have uh, a character who, you know, is like off screen before you meet him, he's, you know, just designated as the pimp. And then we meet him right. and he's just so ineffectual when it comes to social abilities. And obviously he's got a stutter and none of these things are pejoratives, but obviously they ground him in a way that goes against the grain in these kind of crime pictures. And uh, I thought it was fascinating. Totally. As you said, ineffectual, not just in his in his communication, but I mean, he's stuck in jail while this killer's out and he's like, you can see how frustrating. Like a form of voyeurism. <laughs> if you will. But yeah, but he's like, uh, if I was out there, I'd be protecting my girls. You know, like he seems to really believe it. It's like, yeah. also, there's something about um, uh, Gildo DeMarco's eyes that always makes me want to identify with him right away. I think he's in a lot of spaghetti westerns. And even when he's a villain, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of on his side a little. I, I don't know what it is. And uh, of course, my favorite part about him is how it's pretty amusing how he observes that like always the craziest, most transgressively uh, fetishistic weirdos. They're always the rich people looking for a new kind of high. <laughs> He's like, it's always those guys. Those are the killers. You know, it's like what you said about the class distinctions. That's so true in this case where it's like, Oh, this isn't some cheap hood. This is some, some crazy rich person, you know? And in a way it kind of reminded me of, well, uh, essentially in the book Brave New World, Eldis Huxley kind of says the same thing, where he basically is saying at the end that the, the wealthy and, and the the dissipated idle rich are are so like, what the word is, uh, they're, they're just so pacified that the only really intense pleasure they can get at the end is being whipped. <laughs> you know what I mean? And not in a sadomasochistic way. I mean, like actually being whipped and they love it. They're, they're getting this bizarre orgasmic pleasure from it at the end of the novel. And it, 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 I think in a way, that's what Salong is saying. He's like, these guys, man, they get everything they want. And then, you know, one day nothing's good enough unless it's something really, really crazy, like killing somebody or being mutilated or something like that. I thought that was actually really profound. And, and again, uh, the performance by uh, Gildo DeMarco is so good that, you know, it totally makes me go along with it all the way. I uh, completely agree. So, well, I think we run the gamut of uh, this entire production. What do you say? Should we take it into the final stretch? Sure. But I do have a couple quick lingering questions. I figured. That's why I always ask. I have a few lingering questions for you, Nick. I have some questions that need answering right now. Probably don't have the answers, but hit me. Okay, well, the first one is, and this one's probably stupid, um, how much was Carlo involved in all this? Was he just trying to whisk Monica to safety at the end, and then he ends up just being kind of collateral damage? I hate to use that word, but is that kind of what happens? Because he seems like a good yeah, guy. Yeah, I always, I, I took him as a red airing. Okay. Yeah, there's always got to be characters that populate out the whole thing, especially ones that maybe have a little bit of a quirk to them, so that way... It's easy not to zero in on one person until they're killed, and then there's nobody left. Okay, okay. Well, that was kind of what I was thinking. Um, why does the murderer type up the murder plans ahead of time? I mean, it's a beautiful opening scene in the credits, but I wondered if, like, maybe there were some other scenes that were 
filmed and cut that might have explained the meaning of that ritual. It, I, I mean, that doesn't really matter. It's aesthetically beautiful, so I don't really care. But I just was wondering if you had a thought on it. Uh, I do, and I think what it comes down to is that Dario Argento thought it would be a cool opening. <laughs> okay, that's a very valid. That's a I, valid. Point. I really have no. I'm with you in that it makes no sense, but I, I forgive it because it's the literal first scene, and it's under credits. It's not even like a bumper, so it almost becomes ethereal. And and maybe you know, maybe it's a sick joke. Like, um, you know, our protagonist has writer's block, but here the killer is able to fucking write out this banger. So, uh, <laughs> actually. That's an interesting point. It's almost like we are seeing uh, a shorthand version of a script at the beginning, you know? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe everything we see is just the killer writing it up. It could be. Um, so, this will be my second Nicholas Winding Refn comment of the day. Uh, do you think that the arrangement of the many different knives in Crystal Plumage and the fact that each murder is committed with a different one was perhaps something that Riffin had in mind in Drive when he depicts the Albert Brooks's character with his like creepy fetishized assortment of knives in that glass display case, you know? I mean, because Drive has several film touchstones that are intentionally placed in there. I mean, there's like the Scorpio Rising jacket and all that. So I wondered if you had thought about that or if I'm just like, oh, just, um, because I'm obsessed with Albert Brooks, I just, you know, do that. Wow. That, I don't blame you. Albert Brooks is amazing. Insane. But Refn, uh, you know, I've only seen his later works, you know, starting with Drive and through the rest of his career. I never actually went back and watched his prior stuff, even though I should. But um, they're, they're intriguing. I mean, you know. Yeah. But at least in this in these movies where he really started to catch on, he never has shed his uh, Euro influence. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he's the one who started his own website uh, that was uh, curating Grindhouse movies. That's right. Maybe that's why I thought of that. Yeah. I never really visited it. But, I mean, I read about it, and it sounded like it was a pretty cool thing and whatnot. I don't know if it's still going or if it lasted at all. But technically, you know, when I watch The Neon Demon, I'm reminded of Jess Franco and, and John Rowland and other filmmakers of that. Sure. So I definitely think that Refn is always uh, cognizant of Euro greats like Argento or Umberto Lenzi. Yeah, so I don't know if it was uh, completely cognizant of that one-to-one but it's definitely never out of his mind when he's making movies because it's all over the screen for sure sure i mean it's it's something that i mean no nah, i just saw bird with the crystal plumage for the first time um about I don't know, two months ago so i've seen drive well before but i remember being very um not taken but just kind of morbidly intrigued by this kind of throwaway detail of Albert Brooks's character in Drive having this weird assortment of knives. And it's a very different assortment. It's everything from daggers to a straight razor. And each one of them, after he uses it, he cleans it and he puts it back in the case. And it's it's so ritualized in such a disturbing way that it's always stuck with me. So maybe that was partly why. But yeah, I had forgotten about that grindhouse thing that Refn had done. Well, and straight razors are very much a staple of Giallo. Not to say that they're all committed with straight razors but giallo favors the almost surgical like 
blades over like machetes or something like that. It's always these kind of uh, quick cuts. And actually that whole scene in which um, uh, one of the victims is quite literally hacked. Uh, I love that scene. I really love the sound mixing because in a lot of like, like if it's like an American slasher, like the decibel level would have been pushed up by a hundred, you know, because mm-hmm. we would want to feel the impact. But instead, you know, in this, uh, we hear these very unrealistic, but just almost disgusting swishes. You know, like there, it, you don't really hear flesh, but you hear this. Mm-hmm. And because of that, and the mash cuts with the arm itself uh, swerving back and forth across the axis of the field of vision of the shot, uh, it just creates this very dizzying uh, view of. of being murdered that is honestly more disturbing than a lot of movies that have actual blood in it, including a lot of Argento's later movies where he became a gore hound and became one of the best to, to do it. But, you know, here it's very restrained. Obviously, it's still a brutal movie, but we're more interested in the voyeurism aspect than we are of actually being the voyeurs and, and looking at it for the cheap uh, shock itself. It's an interesting point. I mean, there is that kind of sickening, almost prosaic quality to those slashes. And, and, you know, the other thing, too, is like you said, in an American slasher, especially from the 80s, they would have layered on the soundtrack and the score. This one doesn't have any score for that. It's very eerily quiet. So you're hearing her crying out and then all of a sudden she stops and you're like, oh, my God, she's dead. That's horrifying. And so it, it is. It's incredibly effective. I totally agree with you. Uh, and in fact, in the the Screaming Mimi uh, in the novel, there's a great deal of conjecture about, well, you know, how many uh, knives and what kind of knives uh, is the killer or killers using? And to the point where, like, everybody's talking about it. Um, like uh, in the intro of this episode, you there's a there was an excerpt from the Screaming Mimi, and uh, it's a conversation between. Uh, a barber and the main character about, well, what kind of knife you think the killer's using? Yeah. And um, anyway, but I should also say thank you to Christian Wheeler, by the way, before I forget, uh, for providing the vocal talents there for that excerpt from Screaming Mimi. Uh, Christian Wheeler is co-producer and vocal talent as well for the upcoming Diabolical Tales Radio Hour, yeah. uh, which, you know, just to show something else uh, that I'm involved with, I'm... I'm <laughs> Uh, mixing that particular project and it is coming soon so uh, please do watch this space for more information about the diabolical tales radio hour uh but yes thank you so much to christian wheeler for that wonderful performance uh so but anyway okay so another question Mm -hmm. this is more of a rhetorical question but okay what's i won't answer well uh, yeah i mean really there is no answer but what's what's all that about the guy who's selling produce talking to his kid in that one scene where he's like yeah splat his head burst open like a watermelon and i'm like what the hell is who does it? Why is he telling his child about this? First of all, and, and, and it's just this bizarre gotta learn. I, that people just I, yeah. I, don't, I guess yeah okay gotta learn okay well that was my whole thing there That's- yeah I just I just it's just really straight I mean it made me laugh but I was like later on I'm like wait what what's going on there no anyway so okay so in this last part is more about. Um, Gallo and art in general, I guess. Um, and it's maybe not a question so much as a, I guess, sort of an observation or a way to amplify kind of what we've been talking about earlier. But now in the novel, uh, the Screaming Mimi, the antique dealer, who actually is given a name, his name is uh, Raul Reynard, and who's actually imbued in the novel with considerably more dignity and intelligence than his opposite number in Crystal Plumage, who's kind of a 
homosexual stereotype kind of thing. I mean, it's not super offensive. What? Well, you know what I mean. That character was gay? I know. I know it was a shocker, but yes. But um, the antique dealer, Raul, makes an interesting observation on the novel about the inherent sadism in the artwork that sets off Monica. Now, in the novel, it's not a painting, it's a statuette. And in a way, it's kind of funny because it's almost like the reverse of the Maltese Falcon, where instead of like this statuette that's super precious, it's like a statuette that's been like mass produced everywhere. And it's, it's, you just sell it at an antique store for like cheap, cheap dollars, basically. But he says, he sort of muses, I guess, that only a sadist would want to own that piece of art for their home. And in a way, he gives words that I think maybe help explain my fascination slash general aversion to most slasher movies like we've been talking about. Uh, There's a disturbing delight that some filmmakers seem to take in depicting the stalking and killing of women. And it does feel somewhat sadistic. And I know you and I have talked about this, not just in this episode, but just even in other conversations, which I guess it leads me to a more wide sweeping question, which you and I have talked about, which is, is it basically required for a Giallo film to be at least in part about hurting beautiful women or is that an aesthetic consideration instead of a misogynistic one and it, and before i hand it over to you about that i, I just want to say one thing i thought was interesting was that obviously in this case and in the novel the inclusion of a woman being a serial killer is definitely a new wrinkle and in the extras for bird with the crystal plumage i don't know if you saw this one but a academic uh cat ellinger she mentions that there may have been an uptick in women serial killer characters after the Tate LaBianca murders in 1969, you know, the Manson family stuff, particularly women wielding knives. And so I, I wondered, I don't know if I actually have a question exactly, or if it's, I'm, I'm, I just, I feel like this is something you've probably thought a lot about. And I, I just wondered what you thought. Yeah, I, I, I think it's always going to come down uh, on uh, both sides, which is that it, I definitely think it's an aesthetic choice. I mean, these are mostly heterosexual male directors sure. making movies about what both uh, frightens them, but also excites them. And, you know, the cross-section between those two things are usually beauty and violence. And the only way to get them both in the same shot is to enact violence against beauty. <laughs> and so sure. I, I definitely think that that's inherent in a misogynistic society, a patriarchal society at large. I mean, that's, you know, that's sure. kind of obviously the slasher craze too, as you know, there's a lot. Um, although the slasher craze obviously had the whole final girl thing emerge from it, which is its own uh, interesting repudiation, Definitely. which is both something that's gotten out of hand, not in the sense because it doesn't exist, but because people put a little too much faith in that being a conscious choice, mm. uh, at least at the beginning of when it happened. But that's a whole other thing for another time. Oh, sure. No, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in, in this case, with Gallo in general, I, I, I think it definitely is both. It's it's inherent in a patriarchal society, but also sure. Argento himself. In fact, Argento, with this one at least, is actually pretty tame compared to a lot of his peers. I mean, he would up the violence for sure. There are shots in like opera where people's eyelids are being taped open with needles and 
things like that. And, and it's fantastic. Uh, I honest, I have to admit, I've been kind of hesitant to watch that one because I know about that. And I'm like, Ooh, boy, I don't know if I can so do that good. one yet. Maybe I, I'll, I'll have to watch it eventually. Yeah. But other people like Myrtle Lindsay and Sergio Martino were not shy about mixing in the sex parallel. You know, not just sex appeal, but having this actual psychosexual frustration front and center and informing uh, the motives for a lot of the killings, you know, the, the idea of impotence being actually part of the text instead of the subtext. So, mm. um, yeah, I don't think there's really a great answer, obviously, but it's definitely something that I think pervades the entire genre for better and for worse. Uh, sometimes you get some great art dealing with the fragile masculinity and sometimes you just get art made by fragile men. So, <laughs> Well, I, and, and I say this knowing full well that perhaps Argento's most celebrated, well-regarded film is Suspiria, which is all women. It is, and it's not really a giallo. It's not. It, everybody it, but it's, calls it that because they think Italian horror and made by Dario, but right. that's about, it's about witches, not really the same thing at all. True, but I mean, that character at the end, she's not only the final girl, but I mean, there's that very... Um, enigmatic smile on her face in the rain at the end. Um, I don't know if our listeners have seen the film, but well, anyway, it's worth watching, but I mean, it's, it's oh, very yeah. much a woman. She's an outsider. She comes in and at the end she's triumphant. Uh, and it, it, she does have this sort of odd smile, like, Oh my God, I'm still alive. This is great. You know, which I, I love. You know, I mean, that seems about as far from misogyny as one can get. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I really think someone like Argento, you, you can't not make a movie without misogyny if you're a male and you live in this world because it's, true. it's ingrained in you. Mm -hmm. However, I, there are people who I think love sleaze, but don't hate people. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think Argento is one of them. And I think, you know, even something at its worst, like in this movie, the flamboyant antique dealer is really not as egregious as some other movies of its same era definitely i really never I, I think the performance is obviously deliberately you know stupid whatever but it never also feels like the movie itself is actually laughing at the character which is right uh, a whole other layer that can add to the frustration of seeing this kind of representation throughout the years so while i do think it's not great it's also still I, you know i mean bring in the perverts right i mean that's argento's <laughs> Uh, M.O. Like he, from this movie on, he would start to populate his characters with slightly more grounded homosexual and lesbian characters. So even if it's uh, pretty flamboyant this time around, it I think the idea there was mostly just that he needed a side character and the side character happened to be gay. So therefore the one detail we even get to learn about him has to be heightened, you know, and it's not right, but at least it's understandable, so to speak. Well, and I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing his portrayal of, of the character. It's actually not that bad. I mean, it's somewhat humorous. No, but it's, it's, it's certainly worth commenting on. <laughs> well, and, and I think because I read the novel and because the character is so three-dimensional in his one scene in the novel, very much the character, the main character, Sweeney, goes into his antique shop and he's kind of watching the guy. He's like, well, he's clearly a fag or whatever he says you know something very um it's his internal monologue is, is very unflattering right. but within a few seconds he's like oh i really admire this guy I can see the way he you know he really he really keeps a tight ship and as they talk the rapport continues and they're obviously both extremely intelligent men so in, in a way i guess uh, maybe the antique dealer in 
bird with crystal plumage uh, suffers by comparison, but it's really not that bad, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I don't think. Right on. Well, why don't we head into final ratings? I will go first. Uh, I think this movie is a masterpiece, like I said earlier. I think it's um, probably my favorite Yalo of all time. I don't know. It's hard uh, to choose sometimes between some some movies, like I mentioned earlier, like Torso by Sergio Martino, mm-hmm. or even something like, um, well, actually, another movie by him, uh, Sergio uh, Martino, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Ah, yes. You've talked about that. Which is uh, a very feminist giallo, where we're following a, a female character who's both a victim of uh, a lot of shit, but also carving out her own agency the entire way. It's a very psychosexual movie. It's great. But The Bird with the Crystal Plumage is, I think, tops. It's it got everything you'd ever want from a giallo as far as, you know, it's got some great little kills, but also the cast is just uniformly excellent, which is not always the case in these movies. Usually they get a great lead, but everybody else is kind of just, you know, uh, you know, casting couched into the movie, and it's just whatever. And um, I don't mean that in a uh, modern uh, context. By no, the no, way. no. I, I get you. More like a, out of central casting, if you will. Yeah, but I, I think it's fantastic. I think rewatching it, I'm still floored by how every like I don't think this about a lot of movies, but I think about some, and this is one of the very few. But how every shot truly is like masterfully composed. It doesn't matter what kind of uh, transitionary action is happening, whether it's the main action or, as we were talking about, some kind of a bumper in between scenes. Everything is just composed beautifully, which really obviously highlights the themes of this movie as being an almost like an, an installation in and of itself. And I think mm. that's kind of Argento's uh, MO when it comes to making these movies. As I kind of outlined earlier, you know, when he went out to make this, he didn't want to make it at first. He was just kind of like, oh, well, no one else is going to do it. I guess I'll do it. And I think like that's the pleasure of watching Argento's movies is that these are thought out of as these installation pieces that are just thrilling to watch and rub up against as they play out. So I think Bird with the Crystal Plumage is uh, amazing. I would give it five stars out of five. Uh, I really can't fault it for just about anything. So uh, yeah, Dan, what say you? Well, I love what you just said about the, um, and you had said it earlier too. I love what you said about the idea of um, the, ins- the the film as an installation in itself, because like we were saying, you see that in the gallery where it's very much like a, a tableau or a uh, installation piece. And then of course you've got these sort of weird, almost uh, faux curio cabinets in the ornithological Institute, but it just, you see that over and over again. And I do love that kind of imagery. It's almost like, um, I don't know, Joseph Cornell or somebody uh, who was this artist who would create these small sort of box assemblages, often with taxidermy birds or, st- or, or you know, that kind of thing. So I, I love this idea that it's like an art installation or a tableau and uh, not just within the film, but the film itself is too. Um, I, I very much liked the film a lot. I mean, I think I've seen it three times now and um, I, I do really love the respect that Argento does give to the characters too. I mean, there's a lot of richness. I mean, even the 
the kooky artist is an intriguing character. I mean, you know, he could have just been a cardboard cutout, but he's not. I love the way he talks about his early works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, is like, early this is early Kazan. <laughs> whatever. Very rare. <laughs> I know. I love that. He's, he's he, you know, he's a legend in his own mind, man. I love it, you know. But, you know, if you can crack yourself up, it's like Kyle Kinane says, you know, if you can crack yourself up in the shower, if you're laughing about some joke, you, mean, you know, you're you're doing pretty good. You know, if you, you maybe you don't make anybody else happy. You make anybody else laugh, but you make yourself laugh, you're doing okay. So maybe that's what Berto Consolvi has figured out the weed, you know. But yeah, and, and I also loved, like, for instance, I was, I keep joking about the part where he's like, well, you know, bring in the perverts. But it's funny because during the lineup, um, there's a character who's brought in who's a cross dresser. And Inspector Morosini is like, no, 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 wait, what are you doing? He's not a sexual pervert, he's a, he's a cross dresser. He's not a sexual pervert. And the uh, cross-dresser goes, yes, well, I should hope so. Like, hey, man, I am not in the same league as these crazies, which he isn't. I mean, it's a totally different thing. But I, I loved that even in 1970, there was this kind of distinction. It wasn't like everybody who is involved in what they might call some sort of sex trade or sex crime is all lumped in together. You know, so a prostitute is the same as a transvestite is the same as a guy who exposes himself is the same as a guy who rapes children or whatever. You know what I mean? I, I loved that. I really appreciated that kind of not just richness of character, but I guess to an extent, respect of character. I guess that's something I keep saying when we, when we talk about these movies, the ones I really like tend to show the filmmakers striving to make characters that are indelible and if not three-dimensional because there may not be time to make them three-dimensional at least give them a little dignity and a, a certain amount of dimensionality so i would say this movie i currently would give it four and a half although i would not be surprised if i would go up to five later i think it's just because maybe i've i've only seen it fairly recently now i have seen it three times now so uh but i would say uh, four and a half for now all right Right on, Dan. Uh, seems like we both obviously very much enjoyed it. So mm-hmm. that is The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Uh, it's available now on Blu-ray and or DVD, put out in a wonderful edition by Aero Video. On that note, uh, Aero Video is releasing it on 4K Ultra High what? Definition Disc in case any of you out there uh, have a 4K player. I have already pre-ordered mine, and I am very excited to rewatch it, even though I just obviously rewatched it. So. <laughs> awesome. going to be a good time this summer. In fact, they're clearly, they announced that like a month ago, and then just today they announced a 4K in July coming out of The Cat of Nine Tails, um, another movie by Argento. So clearly they're going to start uh, re-releasing all of their Argento films, except for Suspiria, which was already released on 4K by Synapse Films. And a great package that everybody should pick up. Yes, I've been meaning to for a time now. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so good. Uh, I mean, like their restoration. So yeah, on to the A-list. Wow, what a theme song. It just never gets old every time I hear it. Teresa oh, Brooks, boy. Teresa Brooks, my sister-in-law, I love you forever. If you had done nothing else but just made that theme, you have left a mark that I uh, love. And obviously, I'm not the only fan. I agree. 
And uh, I can't say I love you because I've never met you. And I feel like that'd be a little forward. But uh, well, uh, you seem like a good person, Teresa. She's very lovable. Oh, it's true. So let's do the A-list. And of course, the A-list is the segment in which we talk about an A movie that pairs well with this B picture that we just talked about. Of course, we're using the term B picture loosely, so do not write us angry fan mail. All right, Dan Jeremy Brooks, why don't you hit us with your pick? Well, see, my pick, uh, that all depends on what you pick, so I kind of need you to go first. Why do you need me to go first? I'm not saying I won't go first, but how does it depend on my pick? Well, because I I, I don't want to be redundant, so I just want to make sure I'm not picking the same thing as you. All right, well, my pick is very uninspired, so it may very well be one of your ideas. Uh, Not because you would come up with an uninspired idea, I just mean (laughs) that. No no offense taken. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, the thing that came to mind the most was uh, due to the obviously prolific nature of this particular film, which I will name soon, but... And also with it being a predecessor to this uh, certain kind of crime thriller that emerged... uh, and obviously this filmmaker in general was a big influence on Argento, but that of course did Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. So, ah! Yes, I... The whole... Obviously the plots are extremely different and whatnot, but they come from a similar era right before considering Gallo hadn't quite taken off yet, and it's about to, uh, it still has this almost like bloodless slasher feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, psychosexual dynamics uh, being subtext instead of text. Um, and also, of course, the reveal at the end is uh, very uh, gender bait because there's really never any reason why we believe that the killer has to be a male. We're just kind of uh, led on that path because the characters believe it to be for no real reason. And, um, um, you know, the whole ending reeks of Psycho, not just because it's a similar twist, but then even the final scene is a very kind of a good jokey remake of the final scene of Psycho, because the final scene of Psycho is the dumbest scene ever in a, in, in, in a masterpiece of a movie. But even Hitchcock couldn't, you know, really make that scene land as a doctor explains everything that's happening. But here... At the very least, we have a similar thing in which a lot of exposition is uh, drawn out as we are, you know, told uh, why this, uh, why Monica felt, you know, like she had to, why she was triggered, why she went and killed everybody and whatever. But as you had mentioned earlier, with kind of under the guise of this kind of jokey talk show format, where it almost is a precursor to the whole true crime uh, trend that a lot of people are very into and the whole dissecting what really happened and almost there's almost a pretentiousness to voyeurism itself you know if you're going to sit in armchair diagnose another person and and their proclivities and and their uh violence uh that that says as much about you as it does about them so it's a while the cadence is similar to the psycho's last scene it's a much better version of it for my (laughs) money so so for some good knife-wielding action and some males who feel slightly inadequate in a world in which women can kill them or smother them, <laughs> uh, I say you can't do better than a nice little pairing between a Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage by Dario Argento. 
Well, no, that's a great choice. You're absolutely right, though. I mean, maybe, yeah, of course, it's one of those obvious choices, but you're so right. I mean, the ending of The Bird with the Crystal Plumage reminded me so much of the psychiatrist explaining at the end of Psycho, except it was a little less clunky. Well, quite a bit less clunky, because like you said, it was in the format of this show. And even having, like I said, you have Inspector Morosini going, oh, oh, yeah, I'm really tired. Just Yeah, it's almost like he's like, who is this scene for? Because it's not for me. I don't know why I'm here. Well, in a sense, it's like, man, man, I already did my job. Leave me alone and let the psychiatrist, I don't need to figure out why they do, you know, there's a scene in the movie Homicide where a Joe Mantegna's character is like, hey man, thank God it ain't our job to figure out why they do it. He's like, you know, we just got to catch him, but we don't have to figure him out. Thank God for that, <laughs> you know? And that's kind of where Inspector Morsini is, where he's like, I think the eminent doctor, blah, 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 would do a better job explaining. <laughs> <laughs> also, he's dog tired. He's just exhausted. So he's like, man, I'm just here and I just need to go home. I did my job. Leave me alone. You know, so there's something really kind of beautiful about that. Well, okay. So for my A-list movie, I was thinking of choosing uh, Felicia's Journey for this one, uh-huh. partly as a way to fly the flag for my main man, Adam McGoyan, who I love his filmography, as you know, and, and I've yep. infected you with my love for him as well. And You did. I watched every single film of his this past year. Yeah. You've actually seen a couple I have not seen, I don't, I believe. So I have to, I have to get to him. Well, every time you do something, uh, I just want to be better. You, right. So. It's like the song. It's like everything you can do, I can do better. It's everything Dan can do, Nick can do better. That's basically, that's what the song was originally the lyrics. I don't think that's a song. I think it's just a fact. Well, in some ways it's both. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's. Oh, that's true. That's true. If you can sing it, why not? It's a truism. So partly it was the Adam Goyan thing, but also partly because I just wanted to lavish some praise on the late Bob Hoskins, who I keep forgetting had died a few years ago. And I feel whose skills are like quite often overlooked these days i mean like Great. i think when people super mario brothers oh my god honestly so he good. even pulled that off like that couldn't have been an easy role but he delivers you know no he does i genuinely love him in that movie i know it's as i love dennis hopper in that movie true true although i think hoskins i think comes away with more of his dignity but that's just me you know but anyway you know but when think he- dennis had a lot of it to begin with i think you're probably right so but i mean when when bob hoskins usually remembered it's usually like either as eddie valiant you know great performance robert rabbit love that movie or is that like you know like funny little bald man who did some good supporting roles but it's like he is so exceptionally powerful in some movies like uh the long good friday uh mona lisa he is super good as j edgar hoover in just a small role in nixon i mean the menace and evil he conveys in just like basically three minutes at the most is incredible and there's a scene in felicia's journey um where the camera is just steady on him on his face for like 35 seconds or 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 maybe a little longer where he basically without saying anything about the plot because it would take too long to explain but he sees something that he does not want the person sitting next to him to see he's in a bar or a pub and his face just rolls through a large range of emotions. You've got like, you know, fear, rage, panic. And then the, like that kind of think Hilditch think you got to get out of this, you know, cause his character's Hilditch, you know, he's like, what am I going to do? It's just exquisite. And I also think Felicia's journey shares some of the bird with the crystal plumages stylistic and, dare I say it, operatic flourishes, which play off the other scenes, which are filmed mostly naturalistically in Felicia's Journey. So it's an interesting contrast. But, but 
But I'm not going to recommend that one. I am not going ah, to choose Felicia's Journey. I am going once with, again. Mm-hmm. Breaking the I, rules. You know, breaking the law, my friend. Me and Juice Priest. You know, Rob Halford. No, I'm not going to choose that one. I'm going to go with Brian De Palma's Body Double from 1984. You see what I did there, right? I had my cake and I ate it too. I did it. There's no going yeah, well, back. When you throw up tonight, don't come crying to me. Fine. Okay. I probably deserve that. But so. Body Double's got a ton of overlapping themes about voyeurism and compartmentalization in there, like with Rear Window and Dial M for Murder, homages aplenty. Uh, and uh, it's funny because I was I watched Body Double again recently, and I was looking at some interviews De Palma did back in 84, right when the movie came out. And this is something he said in People magazine. Women in peril work better in the suspense genre. I don't think morality applies to art. So while... I think there's a lot of people who disagree. Everybody from, say, Akira Kurosawa to, you know, John Cheever uh, would disagree with him about morality and art. Uh, But I do understand what he's saying in a way that he's not trying to present a moral vision. He's just trying to present, like you were saying earlier, you want to watch a film that's going to be, that's going to provoke you, something provocative. And that's just something De Palma does in spades in every one of his movies, and especially, I think, in Body Double. you know, I saw this other quote from him from 2016. He says, I was always trying to find new and interesting ways to kill people. <laughs> and it's yeah. just, that's De Palma in a nutshell. Um, so basically the story is this guy, Jake, who's played by Craig Wasson, is house sitting at his new friend, Sam's friend's house. So if you can follow that. So not his friend's house, but his friend's, his new friend's friend's house. And he witnesses through the telescope what appears to be sort of a botched robbery turned murder that occurs in the window of the house across the way. And, and actually, I should mention this side note. The house-sitting scenes were filmed at the marvelous and, dare I say it, breathtaking Chemosphere House in Hollywood Hills. It's right off of Mulholland Drive. It's still there now. It's a uh, piece of uh, California legendary, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and it was designed by this guy, John Lautner, in 1960. And it's like, it's like part googie architecture and part like Buckminster Fuller dome thing. It's just incredible. And I also learned, and this is just adds a little macabre additional aspect, I just learned this, but I guess the second owner of the Chemosphere House was actually stabbed to death in a botched robbery in 1976. So take from that what you may. Oh. But I'm just going to say that's really weird. But I'm digressing. The plot basically hinges on this character named Gloria at the window of this other house being like seemingly killed. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because um, David Robert Mitchell's flick under the silver lake from just like two years ago has an absolutely brilliant scene, which riffs on body double. And I'm not giving anything away from the plot of that film by, by mentioning this. The scene is Andrew Garfield and Topher Grace, and they're using this remote controlled drone to spy on who they think is an underwear model living in this pretty swanky LA pad. And, but at the very moment when they, and well, when they or really anyone who's ever seen a few Brian De Palma films would assume the moment when they're expecting her to shed the last of her clothing, she just begins sobbing in this just heartrending way over this unknown anguish. And it is such a masterful scene. And it's just another great example of what I love about films and the fact that they're all part of a continuum of cinema yep. in which the filmmakers, you know, however separated by time, 
are in conversation with each other. You know, De Palma is in conversation with Hitchcock and, you know, David Robert Mitchell's in conversation with De Palma. And yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating. I, I absolutely love that about Body Double and actually Under the Silver Lake, which is a different kind of movie. But I did consider De Palma's Sisters because that one has got a ton of voyeurism equals death stuff too. But Body Double has got just like all that just resplendent, new wavy aesthetic colors and it just seemed a more obvious pairing with argento with the colors and everything plus there's cameos in the film from some screen queens actually i realized this time around uh brinky stevens and barbara crampton who we talked about a little bit in the space truckers episode too that's right so i love it and it even has like this bloodthirsty guard dog which actually is sort of a big part of the Screamy Mimi novel, so hmm. enough about that. Oh, uh, there's a huge guard dog scene in the movie Tenebrae by uh, by Dario Argento. Oh, really? There's like a cross like city chase. I mean, the guard dog uh, gets out of the place that the protagonist wants to get into, but so it becomes this whole other whole other scene <laughs> of a very vicious uh, dog bite uh, attack scene. It's pretty great. Well, that's actually like the dog in the Screaming Mimi novel is like really crucial. He's named Devil and he's like fiercely protective of this character. It's (laughs) uh, okay. Another weird, strange serial killer tie-in related to Body Double is that uh, Patrick Bateman, I found out in the novel American Psycho, he cites it as his favorite movie, which he's watched like dozens of times. So it's like, I keep thinking, you know, like I have to go return some videotapes. He must be returning body double, you know? So the other thing I'll say about body double that I really like is that it, the lead is played by Craig Wasson, who I really don't know from a lot of stuff, um, but he was in, and this will interest you. His main credit other than body double that really jumped out at me was he plays Dr. Gordon in a nightmare on Elm street three, the dream warriors, which oh yeah Nicholas, which Nicholas, you have been threatening to do an episode of Project Exploitation upon, yep. which I find a very exciting prospect. So that just ties that together too. I have not actually seen it, but I have heard good things from you and actually from others. So it would be the Nightmare on Elm Street sequel I would go to first if I was going to. So hopefully, uh, dear listeners, we will do an episode on that pretty soon. But one last weird thing, which is just so interesting. Craig Wasson. The guy who plays Jake in Body Double, he was in an episode of Tales from the Dark Side, and that particular episode was based on, wait for it, a Frederick Brown short story. Shut up. Yes. Everything gets a return, my friend, and it all comes back around. Frederick Brown, author of The Screaming Mimi, Tales from the Dark Side, Body Double. It's all there. I lost faith in you a little bit during that entire segment but then at the very end uh i'm a believer again mm. and i saw your face you saw you saw, <laughs> oh, boy. You saw that i was faithful it that's took right. a while but i i remained faithful yes yeah ah well that's a great choice dan i've actually never seen body i still have to oh. watch it i know it literally sounds like something i would absolutely love um and yet i still have not sat down to watch it despite the fact that i've watched a lot of brian de palma um in fact i almost the other choice i was going to maybe do besides psycho was actually dressed to kill um because right there's a lot of uh stuff happening in that movie especially at the end uh that ties in and whatnot so uh oh. right there's the whole gallery sequence and the voyeurism and- yeah 
that was yep. the film I believe he did right before Body Double. And um, Body Double strikes me as being, you know, I mean, all of De Paul's movies are pretty funny, but I think yeah. Body Double is a little funnier than most of his non-comedies. So not counting his early films. Yeah. Like this one has a lot of very clever, sort of almost fourth wall breaking little jokes. And it's it's very, yeah. very amusing. Well, and Dress to Kill was in a lot of ways like a, a trial run for Body Double because the opening scene had the Body Double. Yes, yes. I think he said that he got the idea for Body Double by spending time with the person who was the Body Double and just kind of learning, well, what's it like to be an actor whose main job is being, you know, and just kind of, and he thought, well, wouldn't that be an interesting idea for a plot? And you stir in some rear window in there and you got yourself a, you got yourself a Cracker Jack film right there. Sure do. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this particular episode of the Projects Pod. That is, of course, <laughs> Project Exploitation. We'll see if that's we'll see if that's still the same uh, next episode. I don't know. Maybe we'll just trash it all and we'll start a new, a whole new podcast. I don't know. But uh, or maybe we'll just be so far streets ahead that we'll just you know we'll be doing Projects Pod. We'll be doing acronyms that you haven't even heard of yet. It'll be amazing. So, yeah, look for this space uh, for our next episode, which is going to remain a secret, not because we don't know what we're going to do, but because it is a fun little surprise. Uh, All I can say is that things are going to heat up considerably uh, the next time you see us. So uh, don't be alarmed if your feed looks a little different next time around. So... From myself, Nick Cheney, and from my good friend and co-host, Dan Jeremy Brooks, and uh, just keep on projecting. It just needs an end, Max. I, I don't have an end.